This week in KMA Land, Deadly Perry shooting incident stuns the region. KMA Land school administrators react to Perry shooting. Glenwood mourns former mayor's passing. Page County officials explore Essex law enforcement assistance. Page County Comp Board makes salary recommendations. And Montgomery County Board holds its first 2024 meeting. I'm Mike Peterson. It didn't take long for the first major news story of 2024 to break. It happened in Perry, Iowa, a community that joined the long list of those experiencing tragic shooting incidents, and its repercussions were felt all over KMA land. The facts are these. Authorities say a 17-year-old student perpetrated a deadly shooting incident in the Perry School District Thursday morning before turning the gun on himself. Officials with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation say Dylan Butler was armed with a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun to carry out the shooting at Perry High School. At a news conference late Thursday afternoon, DCI Assistant Director Mitch Mordvet says a sixth grader at Perry Middle School was killed. Five others were wounded, including four students and a school counselor. Mortfit says Perry police officers responded to an active shooter event at the high school at 7.37 a.m. At the same time, he says the Dallas County Communication Center received multiple 911 calls of an active shooter at the school. Perry police officers responded within minutes. They immediately made entry and witnessed students and faculty either sheltering in place or running from the school. Once inside, they located multiple individuals with gunshot wounds. Officers immediately attempted to locate the source of the threat and quickly found what appeared to be the shooter with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. As additional officers responded, Mortved says a systematic search of the school took place. Officers located during the search of the school an improvised explosive device. The state fire marshal and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms rendered the device safe. Numerous officers from multiple agencies were able to secure the school and verify no additional threats. Mordfit says the five other victims are being treated at area hospitals. Their names were not released as of late Thursday. He says law enforcement response was swift and immediate, and he praised school officials and instructors for their response to the incident. You know, everybody reacted the way they should, and, and it's obvious that training, first of all, at the school level, you know, with faculty and students, um, everybody reacted absolutely appropriately the way they should, as well as law enforcement as they are entering the building. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds praised Perry and Dallas County law enforcement, plus first responders for their coordination and handling of the shooting incident. In a situation like this, as we all know every minute counts and their heroic actions today we can say saved lives the response was tremendous and we're extremely grateful reynolds later ordered all flags in the state at half mast in support of the perry community Heartbreaking, sickening, and devastating. Those are the words KMA Land School Administrators used to describe Thursday morning's tragic shooting incident in the Perry School District. KMA News gathered reaction from local school officials to the incident at Perry Middle School and High School. Shenandoah School Superintendent Dr. Carrie Nelson expressed her remorse over the incident in Perry late Thursday morning. It's a tragic loss, and 
my heart breaks for them and I know our whole school community is you know just deeply mournful for them and very regretful for, for what what's happened. Shenandoah is among the area school districts taking steps to improve security over the past few years. In late 2022 the district underwent a two-day review of security measures conducted at each of the district's buildings. Shenandoah's district was among those receiving $50,000 per building from the Iowa Department of Education for the review as part of Governor Kim Reynolds' school safety initiative. Nelson says the review led to improved safety measures in the district. Taking time to do the safety audit a year ago was very beneficial to our district. We were able to identify some areas that we could definitely say were strong and solid on in other areas where we needed to make some changes. And it pointed us in the right direction to make some significant change. We've invested in some new technology, um, changed our training protocols a little bit, and have just had a deep focus on changing our practice internally. Additionally, the district and the city hired former Atlantic Police Chief Dave Erickson as a school resource officer at the beginning of the school year. Nelson says having an SRO is an asset to the district. I know we believe strongly that it helps build relationships with students in a positive way between the police and the students and also the school district. And so those are all deterrents that are, are helpful in this type of situation. But again, in this type of situation, we're focusing on prevention. We're focusing on ways to react if something would occur, that things still happen. And I'm confident that Perry has gone through similar types of improvement. Lorinda School Superintendent Jeff Privius says no school district should have to deal with incidents such as that occurring in Perry. But Privius says his district takes numerous precautions to keep students and staff safe, such as installing surveillance cameras to locking doors during the school day. Another step is improved security at each building's entryways. One such project is planned at Clarinda's 712 complex as part of a secured advanced vision through education package totaling approximately $9.8 million. Once we get that in place, our students will only come in one set of doors instead of right now we're using three. So we'd really like to clean that up so we have students coming in one area. And that'll be a secure entrance with a larger holding area once we get that done. And we're also looking at doing the same process down at the elementary. Plans for a similar entryway upgrade at Clarinda's pre-K-6 facility were covered under the $10.3 million bond issue rejected by voters in November. Privius says the district is now exploring a voted physical plant and equipment levy to fund the project. We've been looking at doing a voted PEPL, which only requires 50% approval for that to go through at $1.34. With Perry, it just makes that situation in Perry, Iowa, just makes the situation even more needed for our district to get that voted PEPL in so we can take care of the secure entrance down at the elementary. Dr. Mike Wells is superintendent of the Essex and Hamburg school districts. Like other districts, Wells says Perry conducts active shooter training and had plans in place to deal with violent incidents. But he says there's no way schools can fully prepare for shooting incidents. You know, we do have plans in place. We have rehearsed plans in the past. What do you do if there's an active shooter in your building? Our staff's been trained in Alice. But the bottom line is it's very difficult to prevent these uh, kinds of things from happening. And if someone wants to come into your school and do harm, uh, we don't have bulletproof glass. People can get into your buildings, even if you have the best plans in place. Well, says one additional step his district and others are taking is addressing student mental health issues. Kim Leiniger was a hire in Essex and in Hamburg this year to help provide mental health to students who are struggling and have 
someone that they can go to and talk about their issues because it is about relationships and identifying those students that have special needs in this area. The superintendent says Thursday's incident in Perry will prompt a review of his district's emergency and safety procedures. Glenwood began 2024 by mourning the passing of its former mayor. The Lust Hills Funeral Home in Glenwood announced this week that Ron Cohn died at his home Saturday at the age of 80 years old. Cohn served as mayor from December 2017 when he was appointed to the role after winning the election as a write-in until his resignation last month due to personal health matters. Glenwood City Administrator Amber Farnan worked with Cohn. Farnan reflected fondly on her years of working with the former mayor. He was a a really good leader. He cared very much about our community. He had accomplished so much in the time that he was here and that the city really had moved forward. And he just he just cared a lot about our community and, and those in it and the surrounding communities as well. Born and raised in Cherokee, Cone attended Wayne State College before beginning a career as a teacher in Waterloo, Nebraska. Then he and his wife, Joanne, moved to Glenwood, where he spent 32 years teaching chemistry. Cohn also spent time in county government serving multiple terms as a Mills County supervisor. Farnan says Cohn embodied public service. Yeah, and I think his career as a teacher, he was a coach. He volunteered quite a bit, I know for sure, at the storehouse um, here in Glenwood. And, you know, served on several boards, including like SUPCO. And I believe he served on MAPA, but I know he was really involved with those as well, MAPA and SWCO. In the wake of Cohn's resignation last month and after interviewing five interested candidates, the Glenwood City Council appointed Angie Winquist to fill out the remainder of his term, which expires at the end of 2025. Winquist spent five years as city clerk before working as the city administrator from 2017 until her retirement in January 2022. Winquist told KMA News she looks forward to getting back into city government. I was very honored and that they chose me um, after the interviews that we did last week. I look forward to working with the council that are still here and the new council members that are coming on board. Moving to Glenwood in 1983 with her husband, Winquist initially worked in distribution in Omaha for nearly 30 years before taking a part-time position with Mills County Public Health and eventually becoming the city clerk. Winquist says her experience should aid her return to City Hall. I was very familiar with uh, working the budgets and uh, you know, doing the finances for the city and working with all the different department heads and attending all the council meetings. Barring residents petitioning for a special election within 14 days of the appointment, Winquist will serve the remainder of the current mayoral term, which expires at the end of 2025. Again, petition would require at least 104 signatures. Page County's Compensation Board is calling for salary increases for some of the county's elected officials. Meeting Thursday afternoon to the county courthouse, the comp board recommended a 7.5% increase for the auditor, recorder, treasurer, attorney, and sheriff, and zero. 0% for the Board of Supervisors. Two citizens representing the supervisors, plus representatives of the county's other office holders, comprise the comp board's membership. Beth Ann Tillman, one of the supervisors' representatives, says the board doesn't want a salary increase. Speaking as a representative for the auditor's office, former Supervisor Alan Armstrong suggested a flat salary increase for elected officials. I really like the idea myself. Uh, being a past board member of getting back on direction of a uh, flat raise, whether it be the same for everybody that are elected officials. Uh, if one group decides not to uh, accept a raise, that's perfectly okay. Uh, but I feel that we should 
get back to trying to level things out as much as we can in the future. The survey Armstrong previously made a motion for a flat 9% increase for all but the supervisors, but that motion ultimately died for lack of a second. Armstrong says the recommendation would balance out the previous two years, which he notes were below the cost of living adjustment. Back in 22, I believe the final raise uh, ended up being 9 uh, three and a half and three, uh, nine for the sheriff and 3% for the auditor and, or three and a half for the auditor and three for, and Carl, and then three for everybody else. Last year in 23, it ended up being 3.85 for everybody. And I, I'm not sure what the cost of living was last year, but it was still much higher than that. Still to come, what to do about Essex law enforcement coverage. Stay tuned. Page County officials continue to explore options for the city of Essex's law enforcement. Page County Sheriff Lyle Palmer updated the county's Board of Supervisors Tuesday morning regarding the Sheriff's Office providing police coverage in Essex. Discussion follows the City of Shenandoah's termination of a 28E agreement for similar services to the community last month. The current agreement expires January 19th. Palmer says a rough estimate uh, charging the City of Essex for the county's services ranges between $60 and $65 per hour. So what I'm trying to do is make this fair to everyone in the county, including the citizens of Essex and everybody else in the county, as far as what the actual cost is per hour per vehicle per deputy. That includes maintenance, radios, upfit, everything like that that we have in that vehicle as far as where we're at. Now, of course, the radios are all are already paid for. However, it does cost money to switch over from one vehicle to the to another, and they last about four years. While similar agreements are in place with some of the county's smaller communities, such as College Springs, Palmer notes Essex is much larger with more businesses and will likely result in significant coverage in town. If you look at the businesses, if you look at the, the population or what they're going to want provided with the school, with everything else, I don't think that's uh, fair to the rest of the citizens of the county if we try to do something like that. And I'm not trying to be unfair to Essex, but if you look at what Shadow was charging for 35 hours and if you figure in 65 dollars let's just say per hour for 35 hours for a 52 week year i mean you're you're getting up there you're more than what shenandoah is charging by far under the previous agreement shenandoah police provided at least 35 hours a week with city officials noting it was often more than those hours as needs warrant even if essex hires its own police chief palmer says county coverage would likely still be involved in the conversation <laughs> they do decide to hire their own chief of police mm -hmm. then we need to think that person's going to be a 40-hour week probably so who's going to cover essex in the interim has anybody thought about that who is going to provide law enforcement to essex when that person is a off duty whether he's sleeping or out of town. Noting he wants to help the community in its time of need, Palmer says the next step between himself and city officials is to figure out how many hours they wanted the agreement and how often the city is billed for those services. The sheriff's office last provided police coverage for Essex in 1992. Montgomery County's leadership is intact for 2024. Montgomery County's Board of Supervisors held its annual reorganizational meeting at its first meeting of the year Tuesday morning. Board members unanimously reappointed Supervisor Mike Olson as board chair and Charlotte Smith vice chair. 
The board also elected to keep its regular meeting schedule of Tuesday mornings at 8.30 for the new year. During regular business, the board also unanimously approved a new resolution for this year regarding bridge embargoes per Iowa code. Olson says the move comes primarily to allow for law enforcement of the weight limits on the county bridges put in place to the county engineer. Sheriff Spinagle earlier this fall said that they can go out and talk to these people crossing these bridges, but there's nothing legally they can do because we have not passed a resolution covering those bridges. Now, the reason we had so many items in our packet uh, referring to these embargoed bridges is that every bridge in, in Montgomery County is actually legally embargoed, whether it's 40 ton or, or below. Per Iowa law, he adds the embargoed bridge restrictions apply to any implements pulled by farm equipment such as grain carts and wagons, semi-trailers, and manure tanks. Reading for the resolution, Supervisor Randy Cooper outlined some of the provisions such as the required posting of the weight limit. In addition to any previous established restrictions established by this board, that vehicles and load limits be established, that signs be erected advising admissible maximum weights, therefore, on the bridges listed a violation of the ordinance is punishable by a fine as set forth in Iowa Code Section 321-471. And that said limitation remain in place until a county engineer certifies said limitations have been resolved. Board members also approved slight changes to the county's publication policy utilizing only the Red Oak Express. Iowa Code recommends having two newspapers if the county's population is over 10,000 and have at least two papers publishing regularly and timely. Montgomery County Auditor Jill Ozuna says there were times when the Villisca Review wasn't publishing regularly. The requirement is, is a newspaper of a general circulation that has been published at least once a week for at least 50 weeks per year within the area and regularly mailed through the post office for entry for at least two years. I guess the issue here is there was two months that didn't get published timely. She adds that the second paper doesn't meet the timely requirements. They don't need multiple papers. The board also designated its 2024 county holidays and approved leaving committee appointments the same as the prior year. Red Oak officials are backing a downtown revitalization project's grant pre-application. At its regular meeting Tuesday night, the Red Oak City Council unanimously approved a letter of support acknowledging the city's contributions for pre-application to the Iowa Economic Development Authority's Community Catalyst Grant Program. State officials designated up to $100,000 for property owners seeking to renovate or demolish structures or stimulate growth and reinvestment in the community. Officials with Root LA LLC and the downtown LLC based out of Red Oak seek the full 100000 to help renovate most of the structure at 503 North 3rd Street, currently housing Jay Mercantile. But the grant requires a local match. Red Oak Mayor Shauna Silvia says the city is proposing a match worth roughly $110,000 in financial contributions and in-kind donations. Up to uh, $100,000 divided over a three-year period that would be paid to the developer. We're including my grant writing time of putting that all together, waiving building permits, and then also city administrator's time dealing with the legal and contractual agreement side of it, any TIF-related activities and other administrative duties. So that comes out to a city's 
total contribution of 110687 Silvius says the city could use some of the nearly $100,000 in annual revenue generated by the downtown tax increment financing district to make the city's financial contributions. Roughly $70,000 is designated to the Downtown Urban Renewal Board. The mayor adds approximately $30,000 has been set aside in recent years as a special project fund. What I would like us to consider and you to consider is if we could set that 30000 aside and give that uh, authority to the DUR to be able to have that available for other community catalyst type projects like this one. Um, maybe not every year. We would not be able to do it every year because we have to generate, get the fund up to have enough money. Um, but to be able to help support Community Catalyst projects. After two more payments this year to downtown LLC and another renovation project, she adds that $30,000 will be available for use elsewhere. Silvius adds a strong local match can increase the likelihood of the developers receiving the Catalyst grant. The mayor says the developers plan to add commercial and residential value to the structure. Jay Mercantile only uses the front portion of that lower level of the building. This will improve the entire bottom floor for businesses that they're going to have as pop-up shops for entrepreneurs. And then the second and third floor have no value right now. Um, they're ready to be completely built out with apartments. And these are two-bedroom apartments. If the project is selected for the full application and should receive the grant, Sylvia says developers must complete the project within 24 months. The pre-application is due this month. Also Tuesday night, the Red Oak City Council approved applying to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Development for funding options on nearly $8.3 million worth of improvements to the city's wastewater treatment facility. Action followed a presentation from Snyder & Associates, who has spent the last several months conducting a study on the plant. Primarily, Red Oak Mayor Shauna Silvia says the study confirmed the city's staff observations that much of the equipment, including boilers, plumps, and the SCADA system, is beginning to show it's age and most not replaced until 1986. So it's all very old and just in looking at the components you can tell um, how, how old and how non-technology driven they are. Um, I know we already are currently having problems with our SCADA system. We have pumps that are uh, triggering or going out uh, occasionally and so we know that these are things that, that we really need to replace and We've been limping them along for quite a while. However, Silvius emphasized the survey indicated the facility can handle the current wastewater demands, adding this is strictly a refurbishment of the current plant. She says there was an emphasis on putting on an update of the current SCADA system. It's a system uh, control, data, uh, control and data acquisition program, and it basically is a, a, a way of communicating between each of the building structures uh, within and across all of the processes that occur during uh, waste treatment, through the waste treatment facility. The council also met with Jessica Bass from USDA Rural Development to discuss some financing for the project. Nebraska City now has a policy in place for snow removal. Nebraska City City Council set the policy at its first meeting of 2024 Tuesday evening. Well, speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Nebraska City Mayor Brian Beckett says City Street Commissioner Joe Cheney and City Construction Manager Marty Stovall work with the city's other commissioners 
commissioners to develop the policy, which sets priorities for clearing snow off the city streets. We're going to hit the emergency routes first, and we're going to make sure the route to the hospital and the schools are all cleared, and then it goes through the different priorities where we finally get to things like alleyways and things like that. How we'll remove snow off Central. Beckett says the policy also addresses issues regarding mailboxes. If we hit a mailbox with a blade, we'll replace it. But if you are throwing snow off the blade and it hits a mailbox and a mailbox can't withstand it, this policy lays out that that's not the city's responsibility. That homeowners should have a mailbox that's up that can withstand the snow, you know, hitting against it as they go through with the blade. Amazingly, the city had no snow removal regulations in place until now, and Beckett says Cheney felt it was important to set a policy, especially with mailboxes. It was hit or miss on that. Some we did replace, some we didn't because people didn't know what the answer was. So that's kind of what Joe dealt with last winter. So he he said, okay, let's have one in writing so folks know. But the priorities have always been executed in the same way that it's written in the policy. Just, we just didn't have it written down and uh, we're going to put it up on the website for folks to look at. In other business, the commissioners approved the issuance of GO bonds not to exceed more than $2.5 million for the 11th Street Improvement Project. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to kmaland.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This week in KMA Land, a presentation of KMA News.